0: This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land.
1: We acknowledge the First Nations and Elders of this country and we join their calls for justice.
0: Not to body shame you, Tom. Yes. But I hear you have a really tiny penis.
1: (laughs) How does that not body shame me?
0: How is it not body shaming? Is it body shaming?
1: Feels like it definitely is. What what kicked off this discourse?
0: It's come up in Australian politics before with some dipshit being like, okay, but can we stop like making fun of people for having small dicks? <laughs> and but the latest is because Lydia Thorpe was like in her fight with um, people outside a, a pub where they were, you know, being racist shits to her, and she, yes, referred to the size of their penises. And uh, Dean Madigan was like, okay. But seriously, tweeted something like, "Can we stop? Not cool. uh, can we stop doing the small dick thing mm.
1: as an insult?
0: It's body shaming. It's not on. Like, I, I mean, okay. Like, I understand. There is an I think there is like an anti-patriarchal argument that you know." The idea that the size of a penis determines like strength, masculinity, validity of a of mm-hmm. a person as a, as a man, and that's a good thing, and and all of that. Like, yes, that's stupid, but in the scheme of insults and yeah. just problems in the world, like making fun of people for having a small dick is not. I'm not that worried, <laughs> but I don't know, Tom. How do you? I'm sorry. I should. As a
1: crossing with lived experience. Hey, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to have a bit about it.
0: Tom's like, should I defend myself? Should I yeah, try I and say my dick is big? Or should I, <laughs> what road do I go down?
1: <laughs> I'm doing fine. Okay, everyone. Probably not as Wait, well as you might think for a see. six foot three guy, but <gasps> I'm doing fine. Okay. Is
0: that a thing? Are you meant to have a bigger dick if
1: you're I- tall? I think people have assumptions that, well, if every other part of your body is bigger, why, why? And it's a very good question. Why would that bit not be just as, just as big?
0: I've never really thought about that. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. I mean, I guess like proportionally.
1: But surely it's used, like it's, it's, it's a different thing to like, if you just see someone with a small penis and go, ha, ha, look at that small penis. And rather than you are a piece of shit or you're a guy's clearly very insecure Ipso so facto, you you, I'm going to say penis. you have a small dick to try and like hang a bit of shot on you. I think there's like a difference between those two. You know, whenever and someone drives think- past in a really loud car or uh, like drives past or like well like past. like the
0: Australian government ads with yes, the little yes. pinky where they were like, little you're speeding, pinky. you've got a tiny penis.
1: <laughs> 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 but then also didn't someone find a D-Manigan tweet in which she said she was calling someone else <laughs> a Oh <small> yeah, penis? Because
0: <laughs> obviously she just hates <laughs> Lydia Thorpe. Um, what's D-Man is she, she's Sky News, right, or something like that?
1: Uh, well, no, am she, I wrong? she might commentate on Sky News every now and again. She's on Gruen yeah, mainly, okay. but she's also a Labour advisor. Yeah. Right. Cool. And uh, a fierce her. defender of the People's Party. And yes, certainly no fans of the Greens. And of the people. What did you think tonight? of the Lydia thing? Just just quickly, what did you think of the Lydia thing? I thought it was I thought it was kind of I don't know the full context. I, I thought it was kinda of- I
0: don't know the full context either. I yeah. think she's doing an interview with Tom Tanickey. Okay. I should talk about it. Maybe that's out by now. I'll be interested to listen to slash watch that. It's just like Lydia just dis- like, oh, Lydia's messy discourse because she's continually like targeted with racism. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm bored of this. People should right. just stop fucking, just leave her alone.
1: <laughs> Carrying up. But I just, I think it's very relatable. Almost everyone I know has had a moment, an embarrassing moment with bouncers at a nightclub at some point after having a bit of a party. Yeah, and exactly. What I don't buy into is this idea of like, oh, us senators, they should be the best of us. They no, should, they should I know. It's so
0: stupid. <laughs> yes, let her They have should use little... the correct
1: words and wear a nice suit as they vote to give tax cuts for rich so people and torture stupid. refugees. That'd be nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the determinant of whether they are a person of, you know, sufficient quality and character to yeah. represent us. No.
1: Anyone who says that has a small dick.
0: Small penis. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Talk about the Greens. That funny, that funny. Idiot.
1: They want to destroy the social fabric of society. Well, the Greens get way too good a run in the Australian media, and I'm not suggesting the Greens are terrorists. I'm suggesting they hate our society.
2: Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a serious danger to Australia.
1: Speaking of dicks, it's us. Tom Ballard <laughs> and everyone <laughs> mood. It's serious danger. A show about Greens politics in Australia. It is not an official Greens Party podcast. Every
0: Mm-mm.
1: person with a penis Mm-mm. who's a Greens MP. Swing a uh, packing, they're packing large, baby. Don't you worry so
0: about it. So big. Yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. It's part of the ratification Huge. process.
1: Made possible with the help of the Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin, who has an absolute hammer between his legs. Oh my
0: God, enormous. You guys have no idea. <laughs> Tiny balls, though. Tiny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, oh Michael, I'm sorry. He has no right to reply.
0: You're going to keep this in? <laughs>
1: This week, we're chatting about the bombshell news that this Labor government, would you know it, is going to keep being shitty to poor people, which is so weird because they're on our side. Mm. And we're joined by the newly elected New South Wales Upper House Greens MP, Dr. Amanda Conn, to doctor. chat. Doctor, if you don't mind, to chat about the sickly state of Australia's healthcare system. <laughs> Do you like that?
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Hey, we have new patrons, Aaron, Rachel, and Renee. Um... We also, we have a live show coming up. I'm informed that people are buying tickets. It is legitimately selling fast. It really is. So if you haven't got a ticket, you should buy one because you might, like, miss out, and that would be sad.
1: (laughs) Everyone can't believe it. It is happening on Sunday, May (laughs) the 21st in Brisbane at the Good Chat Comedy Club, uh, 2 p.m., me and Emerald live on stage and joined by comedian Geraldine Hickey, if you don't mind, and... Griffith MP, Greens MP, Max, Big Dick Chandler Mather is going to be joining us on stage. (laughs) To reflect on the year that's been since the 2022 election, it'll also just be a fun gig. We'll chat about what's happening in the news and uh, have a bit of a fuck fuck around. It's our first live gig that isn't at a Greens National Conference, which is very exciting.
0: We're going mainstream. (laughs)
1: We're branching out. And um, we would love to see people there. But yes, seriously, I think like 60 or 70% of tickets are gone. They're just 20 bucks to help us cover the costs and help us uh, continue the show. But yes, Sunday, May 21st at the Good Chat Comedy Club in Brisbane in the state of Greensland. I don't believe anyone in this house could imagine living on $40 a day. I don't think I could live on $40 a day. Those on Newstart and Newstart are experiencing poverty at highest rates. When
0: people can't afford the basics and the essentials, our local businesses have less to spend on wages
1: and jobs. It's plain for everybody to see that Newstart must increase.
3: It's time to listen to the evidence. It's time to do the right thing.
2: It is time for the Prime Minister to increase the rate of Newstart. A payment that people can't, can't live on. They're people on Newstart. He forgot them. And pull people out of poverty. It, it is an inadequate payment. It doesn't allow
0: people to live with dignity.
1: Breaking news. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the breaking news. It's coming music. through on the
1: wires. I'm getting a telegram here. <laughs> the nation is. Over in- to
0: you, Tom Ballard.
1: Oh, uh, well. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, kid. The nation's in shock, see? <laughs> Labor government are apparently not going to pay poor people more money and lift them out of poverty, even though they're on our side, they're for a better future together or whatever the fuck their slogan was, and even though their own special <laughs> economic committee said that they should do that. They created them to would give them advice to tell them to lift job seeker, and they're saying...
0: They ignored a committee. They ignored expert advice. That's crazy. This I doesn't agree. bode well. But go on.
1: The Albanese government will not substantially lift job seeker payments, despite its own poverty experts calling for an increase to this seriously inadequate unemployment support. On Tuesday, the treasurer Jim Chalmers and social services minister Amanda Rishworth, released the report of the interim economic inclusion committee, which found that the dire level of job seeker is acting as a barrier to entering the workforce, as job seekers don't have enough to meet the essentials of life. So it's just the essentials that they come awesome. So it's yeah, just Awesome. Like,
0: I literally just, like, cannot live on this. Just this. But that's how it's meant to be. That's how it's meant to be.
1: It makes sense. This is values-based <laughs> capitalism that Jim Chalmers was talking about earlier in the year. Hmm. The pair promised some measures to address disadvantage in the May budget, including energy rebates, but Guardian Australia understands the government will not implement the central recommendation to substantially increase job seeker. Thoughts, Emerald Moon? Are you shocked?
0: Well, Tom Ballard, my initial response to this news would simply be What is the point of the ALP? What is the point
1: of the ALP? What is the point? I hate it because it, it comes through and you feel a little bit smug. You go, Of course, we knew this was going to happen. But then you remember, Oh, wait, this is. Yeah, poor and then people you're starving. like, Oh, are people Jesus starving. Christ. Yeah. So this is the committee that David Pocock secured for his support of Labor's industrial relations legislation back in November. Now I remember us talking about this. And yes. again, not to be too smug, but we were just like, oh, oh David. honey, girl, he ain't treating you no good. He ain't going to change.
0: I don't think you should do that voice, but.
1: Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it was chaired by former Labor Minister Jenny Macklin, who used to be a minister in government in Labor under Julie Gard and they didn't yeah. increase New- didn't like restart, Newstart back so- then, Okay, mm-hmm. but they thought they'd bring her in. Delivered the report in February, apparently. The government just made it released uh, public this week.
0: Oh, yep, okay.
1: So they've been sitting on it for a little while. So they had
0: it, They yeah. They had it, yeah, Good. they had
1: it. But now outside here. It found out on all indicators job seeker and youth allowance are seriously inadequate, whether measured relative to the national minimum wage in comparison with pensions or against a range of income poverty measures found that they've, uh, as I mentioned before, fallen to such a stage that they're actually a barrier to getting into work. And I'm sure people have heard this before. <laughs> when you are struggling to pay rent, if you're living in your fucking car, if you can't afford the essentials of life, mm. guess what? You're not amazing in a job interview or, you know, these these can be things that can actually hamper your ability to get work and to get ahead. Mm-hmm. So it's actually it's, it's actually worse for a, for unemployment and people getting back into into work. Yeah. Youth allowance was included, and Commonwealth rent assistance as well, also inadequate. Mm-hmm. And so you know the majority of that is about five hundred eight thousand people who are unemployed at the moment who, who will be living below the poverty line, and people are, cho- are being forced to choose between buying medicines and paying rent. And you know some recipients were experiencing suicidal ideation because that that's how desperate things are. Mm-hmm. Remember that about forty percent of people on Job Seeker have a disability, and ten percent are homeless or home. Insecure, so yeah, these are the most vulnerable people in our society. Keep that in mind. I mean, I don't know. Like, what do you think of this report arriving at all? With our cynicism of creating this committee originally, I mean, this report is not telling us anything that we didn't already know. What do you? I don't it? think
0: it is. Is it? Like, we know this. That's what. That's what pisses yeah. me off when you know a new inquiry or a committee is developed to inquire on something that has like a wealth of evidence and clear. Yeah recommendations or solutions that just simply haven't been implemented because there's a lack of political will
1: yes yes and the problem the implication being the problem is we just don't have the facts and we don't have a clear idea of how this is going to work rather than no the clear problem is the political calculus the cowardice of the major parties and their their investment first and foremost to maintain their power and hang into government rather than you know do anything that isn't going to win them a lot of votes, even if that means lifting people out of fucking poverty, for God's sakes.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: So specifically what it was calling for, it was saying that the the base rate of job seeker is currently $49.50 a day. So it, you remember back in the day we were about 40 bucks a day. It is higher now, $49 a day in a cost of living crisis though, and it's been indexed. The committee recommended substantially increasing it by about 60% to make it about 90% of the age pension. So that would be up to $69.50 per day. So that would just return it to the same relative rate it was in 1999, okay? Mm So not an extraordinary ask. It would cost (laughs) about $24 billion over the forward estimates. But people will know, particularly people involved in the Raise the Rate campaign and the Greens were talking about $88 a day. I mean, that is still well below the Henderson poverty line. Mm -hmm. So people would still be living in poverty even with that boost. So it's even the crumbs that are being asked for are being rejected out of hand.
0: So relative rate what does it mean by the same relative rate or was it in 1999 relative to
1: what So like allowing for inflation if 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 it was boosted to $69.50 a day now relative to inflation it would be around where 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 it was sitting in 1999 So okay. so actually yeah so over so time we you're not raising into account the rate
0: uh, higher cost of living higher housing costs that sort Yeah of that's
1: probably that's probably a good point yes yes because also inflation doesn't necessarily always factor in it doesn't include the true housing. cost of housing. yeah. So it's yeah. fucking nightmare. Uh, yeah. The report also called for a refocus on full employment and a major reform of employment services so as to reduce unemployment. So, you know, there's a lot of academics. There's ben Phillips from the ANU who's, who does a lot of stuff and t- saying all the stuff that lots of people have been saying for a very long time, the private provision of employment services is fucking cooked. Yeah. You've got to raise these payments. Um, full employment is good. It's the government's responsibility to get people into work.
0: Do they say abolish private um, job services?
1: Just the reform, please. Major reform. Okay. We okay. can't do anything. We can't critique the idea that the profit motive being introduced into employment services is bad. We just need to reform and regulate it better. Gotcha. <laughs> Literally yawning. <laughs> yawning I'm and bored.
0: <laughs> I'm not. No, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say I'm bored because, like, it's fucked up, but, like, I'm tired. Yes. Maybe that's what I is. Yeah.
1: You can't even with this government.
0: I literally can't. It's (laughs) Labor in its not-raising-job-seeker era. How
1: about no to that? (laughs) Jim Chalmers of Rishworth said in a statement the Albanese government will always look to provide support where we can to those most in need, (laughs) where it is responsible and affordable to do so, and weighed up against Mm. other priorities and fiscal challenges.
0: Always except when we don't.
1: We'll we'll always look to provide, if we Mm. can, based on whatever the fuck we want to do. And, you know, if we've got submarines and tax cuts for rich people, then we're not going to do it. Well, we can't fund every good idea. People (laughs) not being in poverty, good idea, guys. If I had a magic wand and a unicorn. Hey,
0: great idea. That's a really nice idea that people should, you know, be paid enough to live and afford the best essentials. But, you know. To live. Can't do everything.
1: There will be some measures in the May budget to address disadvantage. Oh, great. That'll include energy bill price relief that prioritises those on payments and pensions. Tremendous. I think that people understand we can't do everything at once. We can't do everything that we would like to do.
0: <laughs> mm. can't inter- they, why did they need to add that at once? They can't do everything. They can't do anything. Is that what can't they do? Can't do
1: anything. Yeah, can't do anything. Cool stuff. Um, great quote from Bill Shorten of the Press Club on Wednesday. We want to do things that are responsible and help people. And we've been doing some things. You'll have to watch this space.
0: He didn't say you'll have to watch this space. Isn't that exactly what, what's the classic line, you'll have to watch Peter and Khalil, maybe be please. pleasantly surprised? Yes,
1: you will be pleasantly surprised when Labor wins government and we will definitely raise jobs so you'll be pleasantly surprised. I mean, does that shit even, Does I mean, it, what level of political heat is applied? I mean, as you say, your board, we've heard all this before, both the recommendations and also all the critiques from all the usual voices, anti-poverty activists, ACOS, the Greens. I mean, is mm. it? Is it? does any of it cut through anymore or does Labor just say, hey, we can just say we can't do that, we can talk about the d- trillion dollars in debt, can't do everything, blah, 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 blah. This yeah. constituency of poor people, they're not going to do- decide an election, we can just pretend to be the good guys and ignore these people living in poverty with no political cost.
0: I think it's a question of like is the austerity discourse still working because obviously they're coming into this May budget trying to use the same frame that they did last time, that they're like, look, it's tough times, everyone Mm. better be ready for it to be really fucking tough, Um, we're tightening our belts, blah, 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 we've got all this debt. Uh, And I just get the impression though that that is less and less accepted by the general public. And I think that the more uh, ordinary people become aware of the government spending billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars on shit that does not improve their everyday lives, both at the federal level when you talk about like the tax cuts and submarines, et cetera. Um, but even like a good example at the, at the state level here in Queensland, I think so many people are aware of the government spending billions and billions of dollars to demolish and, like, build again a stadium for a one-off fucking Olympics event in 10 years' time. Like, people know that there is money there, and I think that they I just don't know how much longer Labor can successfully be like, there's just no mo- It's really rough, guys. Mm. Yeah, no, we just, we can't. We understand
1: yeah. that people are doing it tough. I, if the next time a Labor politician says that, I'm going to mm. slap them in the face. I'm going to Will Smith their ass.
0: Yeah, Labor walking past, like, ordinary people, like, they'd walk past someone who is, like, sleeping rough on the street and being like, no cash on me. Sorry, mate.
1: Sorry. yeah. But we see you. I see you.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Of course, pointing out hypocrisy is useless, but important to do, just to remember that Anthony Albanese in 2020 was tweeting shit like this. The government has been forced to admit that $40 a day isn't enough to live on. In the aftermath of the pandemic, we can't have people sliding back into poverty because when Australians fall on hard times, we should help them get back on their feet.
0: Oh, what a guy! We should vote for him. This guy should be Prime minister. Who was that again?
1: Yes, if. I <laughs> Billy Bragg, stop fucking pumping this dude up, okay?
0: Oh my God, Billy Bragg. I was my friend Greg uh, who I work with was saying that they got in like a shouting match with Billy Bragg. I think maybe at what's that festival that's Woodford? Yeah. Uh, like about labor, and Billy Bragg's me, like, he he wants the same things that you do. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> well, no. He he's trying to get to the same place you are, mate. What's what accent is Billy got? What is the Irish? Cu- Irish? No, he's what is he? <laughs> he's
1: cocked cu- me. All right, don't act shit on my <laughs> sassy black oh, lady voice. He wants if you're the gonna- same <laughs> things you do, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he wants the same things. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know.
1: He wants the, the same things as anymore. you, innit? I'm Billy Bragg. He wants
0: the same thing. He's trying to get to the same place you are, mate.
1: It's Labour Braid. Labour mm-hmm. Braid is infected. Even because Billy Bragg, you know, knows how shit the British Labour Party is. Like he don't can't you? Yeah,
0: but it's that thing when you're not in yeah. the country. Like it's even it's like how we see New Zealand right, and right. like then you go to New Zealand and they're like, no, no, our government's <laughs> really bad too. Like yeah, it's it's classic.
1: Um, quick fast from David Pocock, the independent senator, rugby, old old hot. One one head, one neck guy. Um, oh, he, Tame
0: Impala listener.
1: Oh, okay. He responded that to this report. was the shirt that
0: he was wearing when he was, they were like, why is he wearing a shirt? Oh, sure, mm-hmm.
1: was Tame Impala. That's right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, his response to this report is said, it, you know, it makes it very clear that the case is to raise a job seeker. It appears that this Labor government can find extra money for just about anything from inland rail cost blowouts to submarines, but it won't do more to protect the most vulnerable. And I get, I just now went back to- you getting it. Yeah, now you get it, dude. <laughs> But, man, I went back to November when it was initially reported that he got this Economic Inclusion Committee for his support for the IR bill. He described it as it was going to be a game changer for people living below the poverty line and would ensure the most vulnerable people in our community are no longer left behind. I mean, yeah. He said the government will receive independent expert advice that is made publicly available before each federal budget, looking at how the most vulnerable in our community are faring and what needs to change to ensure we don't leave them behind. Just... Do you think he's going to learn anything here? Is he going to, yeah, recognise that Labor is not committed to helping the poor and maybe he should hold out a little bit more rather than doing some horse trading and stuff?
0: I hope so. That's all I, I mean. I hope so. Surely. He seems smart.
1: Yeah. Come on, Davey. Um, and lastly, the two Labor hacks, of course. I thought this was interesting. PR guy. Two. <laughs> Just yeah. a couple of them. Uh, PR guy says, raise the rate. The Albanese government is under pressure to urgently find a way to raise JobSeeker as Australians find face extreme way. hardship and homelessness. It has so far resisted calls to do so, despite Labor MPs publicly calling for raises while in opposition and then posting a unflattering black and white photo of Anthony Albanese.
0: Hmm, <laughs> attacks. This liberal <laughs> hack PR guy. Yes. Wow. Shilling for the Liberal Party.
1: Oh, yes. I have everyone replied to this Do you want Scott Morrison
0: back in power? Do you (laughs) want Dutton to win, PR guy? Is that what you want?
1: (laughs) But the extraordinary division came from our good friend, Van Badham. Uh, Actually, my friend. Not so much Emerald, but I vehemently disagree with her on almost everything, every single day, it seems. (laughs) She was on The Drum on the ABC. And was asked the basic question, you know, gosh, all these people on the left, this, this expert advice that the government themselves put together to give them advice on the adequacy of payments, they're saying raise the rate. If Labor won't do this basic thing now, when will they do it? When will they possibly raise this rate?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are a number of things to consider. I mean, the economy is in a very different place than it was before the pandemic. And in the post-pandemic reality, we're dealing with the fact that there is actually, there are labour shortages across all industries in Australia. Out where I am in Ballarat, there are uh, businesses absolutely desperate for workers. And that's a third conversation going on. There's a conversation about raising the rate. There's a conversation about creating more unemployed people to to um, encourage deflation, which is coming from the Reserve Bank, which I obviously, by the way, do not support. And, and there's a third conversation going, well, how are we gonna get these workers into these industries so we can make production demands. Well, obviously the role for government here is more integrated policy that should be based in what I think is the greatest document in Australian political history, which is the 1945 Curtin White Paper on Full Employment, which was the bedrock of Australian prosperity for 40 years, where the government recognised that its role was to ensure that every single Australian had a job available to them if they could do one. And it's getting back to that framework of going, if there are labour shortages, is And yet there is still a pool of unemployed people. What is the government doing to get those people to those jobs? What is that going to involve? Because I don't actually believe, it's a neoliberal belief to think that welfare is just about money, that we just apportion money to individuals and they can go and spend it in the market. That's why Milton Friedman supported universal basic income. What we need to look at is structures and services and something, and this has been talked about recently, like the Commonwealth Employment Service that had the responsibility of actually making those relationships between communities of unemployed people and, whoa, so crazy, actual jobs.
1: As you saw there, almost completely ignores the question and then starts to talk about labour shortages and has an incredible take that <laughs> it is a neoliberal belief that welfare is just about money, that we just apportion money to individuals and they can go and spend it in a market. That's why Milton Friedman supported universal basic income. Um. Thoughts on that one there? You know what's
0: crazy? Like there is something to what she's saying, I think. We've had this conversation. (laughs) Wait, wait. (laughs) We've had this conversation before when we talked about like universal basic income versus job guarantee stuff, I think. Um, And I was talking about like my concern is when people uh, lobby for universal basic income as their like principal or sole demand uh, without looking at, yeah, like accompanying services uh, and other reforms to reduce wealth disparity, wealth inequality. Um, so if she, like when she says it is a neoliberal belief that welfare is just about money, sure. Yes. But I don't think that sure. people arguing to raise the rate are only no. arguing for that and saying that this is all that welfare is. Like that's absolute no, of bullshit. Um, no that's one bullshit. is saying don't also fund services and like, you know, make all these other reforms to improve our our welfare system. So, like, it's a pure deflection. Yes,
1: Milton Friedman wanted to do UBI and then get rid of the rest of the state completely. Yes, so you all just have money and take it out of the market. But, yes, to reduce- job seeker as a neoliberal payment, unemployment benefits, which was brought in by fucking Labor, by her heroes, Curtin and Chifley, back in the 1940s, as part of the welfare state. In circumstances where we also. As a response to the horrors of the Depression, to (laughs) say that no matter whether you have a job or not, you should still be able to fucking eat and pay rent, for God's sakes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in it is a complete dodge from und- the
1: adequacy, the question about the adequacy. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, sorry, go, you go. <laughs> it's a complete dodge from a the question about the adequacy of these payments. These payments we are making to people saying that this should help tide you over and help you survive while you try to find work, okay, because you're a human being and you deserve dignity, you deserve to be able to cover the basic costs of living. When you asked about raising that rate to make that adequate for human fucking beings, to start bringing in some very highfalutin ideas about the whole concept of just giving money to people's mm. neoliberal is a disgusting, a truly disgusting dodge. From oh, ben yeah, Adam it's here. a real dodge. And completely ignores the whole point of the report, which also was saying that these low payments are actually stopping people getting into work, right? She says, yeah. well, we need to talk about services and structures and bring back the Commonwealth yeah, yeah. There's Employment there's Service. So I'm like, okay, yeah. but in the meantime, just fucking starve, poor people. Just yeah. starve yeah. the Labor government, doesn't give a shit about you. Sorry.
0: Yeah, because I have the, yeah, because like I want to have these like top level philosophical, political, ideological discussions about like what's neoliberal or not, because that's going to help ordinary people. And it's like, okay, you can come back to me and talk about like what's a neoliberal conception of welfare and whether it includes basic services as opposed to just like financial payments when you are actually going to ever put any pressure or criticism on labor governments for their drastic underfunding of those services. Because if you were going to do that, like maybe you would have a shred more credibility when you go and say, well, then they also can't raise the job seeker rate. But it's like when healthcare, housing, education, every other, you know, part of our social welfare state is underfunded by primarily labor governments, to then argue yes. that they also shouldn't raise the job seeker rate is just bullshit and then be like, it's because I'm a socialist. <laughs>
1: like, <Yes>. okay. <laughs> <laughs> really fucking bleak, man. And what was particularly depressing, and, you know, a lot of people made this point, Van also wrote a piece about Father Bob and in, on the drum they immediately pivoted into a discussion about the passing, the very sad passing of Bob Maguire. And, that, look, Van was very good friends with Father Bob Maguire. I'm not in any way undermining her grief. Uh, or or, or implying that that isn't sincere, but this idea of the celebration of a figure like Father Bob and and Mm. talk about the anti-poverty work that she did together, while defending and backing in this Labor government that does not give a shit about poor people, that is actively making a choice to cut taxes for rich people and fund fucking submarines while hundreds of thousands of vulnerable people in this country are starving on one of the lowest unemployment payments in the OECD, a continuous choice that they've made. like that is. fucking shame job big time like how can yeah. you reckon those two things that is cognitive dissonance that is labor hack brain in overdrive in my view
0: yeah yeah and her stupid like book that pretends that she's the first person to discover q in the background where she's in the interview if you look at the video she's just got like her bookshelf is next to her but she's just turned around her book about q just just propped up there so to try and like sell her stupid book as if like Other people hadn't been reporting on this years before she even knew it existed.
1: I didn't mind the book, but it was annoying that she positioned it there, yes, that's very true. Yeah,
0: like, I just don't like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, finally, The Greens, of course, Adam Banton saying, this is bullshit. There are single mums couch surfing with kids right now. There are kids without enough healthy food to eat, and instead of lifting them out of poverty, Labor is choosing to spend billions on submarines, satiety tax cuts for the wealthy, and handouts for fossil fuels. In a housing and cost of living crisis, Labor's not making hard choices; they're just making things harder. I think that was pretty good. Like Labor that? is becoming a centre-right government, making economic decisions Scott Morrison would have been proud of. Ooh, um, so obviously, like we're saying "fuck you, you," like that. Yes, you're Scott Morrison, Van Badham. You went to Hawaii. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's you. <laughs> but the question now is, like, you know, what what actually can we do? I mean, some people say the la- the greed should block the. The budget um, over this, if they, they refuse to increase JobSeeker. seeker. I still don't know how I all mean, that stuff kind of works. I don't think we'd have balance of
0: power because everyone else is going to vote for the budget, right?
1: Well, I guess Lydia might join you.
0: Yeah, but the Libs are going to vote for it. So,
1: oh right, yeah, the Libs vote. Okay, yes. So you're know, yeah. not probably going to get that. Yeah, true.
0: Yeah, like I guess, yeah, maybe that in principle there's a question about whether they should, or, but like they don't. I don't think they have any actual power to. So,
1: yeah, okay. Jesus Christ. Well, yes. Depressing news, probably unexpected. The fight goes on. Billy's a, man. He's a bit preoccupied these days. He's, he's a man with a problem, and I think I've worked out what it is. I'm caught up inside by the terrible fact that you got up and left, said you weren't coming back. Without you, I just don't seem to have any future. So won't you please, please, please come back? Scott Morrison.
0: So Amanda Kahn is a former GP and the Deputy Mayor of Albury City Council, and now the Greens' newest member of the New South Wales Upper House. Uh, hi, Amanda Kahn.
3: Hi, stoked to be here.
0: Very excited. We wanted to like try and get you on before the election, but we didn't have time. But now you got elected. We have you on as an MP. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.
3: Really
1: excited. These are the sweet kickbacks you get when you're elected to <laughs> the Upper House of New South Wales. <laughs> Um, you get to come on serious stage.
3: Yeah, kickbacks are probably sweeter if you were in a major party, hey? Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry we can't provide. We keep asking
1: all these (laughs) major party MPs. They don't get back to our emails. So thanks for replying. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. How's it all going? It's been almost a month since the election itself. Um, I know you were touring all over New South Wales, talking to people about various issues, and you were working your guts out to try and uh, get elected. It happened. Congratulations. How's it been since?
3: Oh, look, it's super exciting. Um, We've obviously got a change of government in New South Wales and a new Labour minority government, which people are Mm. kind of um, tentatively optimistic about. We've got an absolutely massive crossbench in both the lower house and the upper house, though, and that um, is obviously going to be a a bit of a wild card, and we had the final – count of preferences for the upper house, um, just this week. Um, Mm. and, um, didn't go as well as we were hoping we haven't actually got the progressive majority in the upper house. So there's going to be some really intense, um, negotiations coming up. Um, but either way, it's great that we're, you know, in that position to be part of those negotiations, that there is that big crossbench. The Greens obviously have a huge role in, um, working with the new labor minority government. Mm.
1: And Latham is back, right? He's definitely coming back? Yeah. This motherfucker. Yeah,
3: okay. he's back. I got added to a WhatsApp chat that had him no. in it yesterday and it was oh, really, no. like, like, a really cursed WhatsApp chat. <laughs>
1: Gross. <laughs> oh, yucky. All right. Well, solidarity. <laughs> Good luck in there. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Someone, someone's got to fight him and, uh, yeah, we're definitely ready in the New South Wales party room.
0: So have you, have oh. you been to Parliament yet? Or?
3: I have, but I don't have my own office yet. So but not, I've been the Parliament room. hasn't sat. No, so we start sitting on the 9th of May. Have you done MP school? Uh, that'll be next week. Um, but okay. I've had a heap of really good meetings with the Greens, with the Party Room. Um, you know, we're we're raring to go and starting to chat with those other members of the crossbench okay. and and with Labor. Got you.
0: Giant backpack ready. <laughs> Books are all contacted. Yeah, totally. Pack my
1: luggage. No hat, no play. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so the main reason we wanted to have you on was because you are or were a GP and we want to talk about healthcare, I had been kind of interested in just a lot of the stuff that's been happening around, you know, reforming Medicare generally and in particular, yeah, like general practice and what the fuck is going on with general practice and even just this question of, you know, whether Australia actually has a universal healthcare system like we act as though it does. Because, I mean, obviously, even the basic, we talk about the fact that it doesn't cover your teeth or your brain to start so it's not really a universal healthcare system, right? <laughs>
3: um, yeah, it's, um, it's not universal. Um, Medicare is a system where you get a partial rebate for a private health service. It's not actually yeah. a public health system. And it functioned that way for a long time. So it, you know, it's implemented with really good mm. intentions and people could access healthcare somewhat universally for decades. So people feel like it is that way. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're seeing the wheels completely fall off at the moment, Um, you know, during the campaign, hearing from people in every corner of New South Wales who either can't afford to see the GP or are waiting weeks and weeks. We don't have enough GPs generally, we don't have enough GPs in the country. um, Mm. And um, the health system is really going to fall apart over the next few years if we don't fix it.
0: Yeah, I'm, and, and I'm keen to get into all of that. Sorry, Tom.
1: Well, yeah, I was just going to say, just yeah, as a contrast, and this this was a light bulb moment for me recently too. It's like, yeah, in in the UK they have a national health service, which is a very different prospect to what we actually yes. have here. As you say, it is a insurance scheme or it is a subsidy to privatise the the private provision of healthcare in this country. Now there are publicly owned and operated uh, hospitals um, that people can access. That's sort of part of the public health case system, which I think does meet that definition. But yes, a very different. Uh, example than uh, a contrasting example to what they have in the UK, which is the NHS. And in fact, mm. constitutionally, we can't have a national health service. Yeah. Because Federal in the government 1940s, can't, is, yeah, they can't conscript can't fund, or uh, can't yeah, directly
0: anybody. provide health care. They can only fund it.
1: It's like they can provide these know. services, but not, not so as to impose civil conscription of medical professionals. So you, you couldn't enlist doctors mm. and dentists into a national health service, like according to the constitution.
3: Yeah, look, there were a lot of really complicated politics, um, particularly even when they first set up um, Medicare and, and you know, the yeah. history of why dentistry is not included has so much to do with weird politics from decades ago um, yes. than actually what's best for people right
1: now.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay.
1: And conservative medical establishment, like the, the British, yeah. the Australian branch of the British Medical Association campaigned to try and get this. Um, this amendment to the referendum that happened in the 1940s on social services. So you have these like Tory people, like doctors, (laughs) fucking British doctors, the worst kind, you know, actively advocating (laughs) against the public provision of. Of medical care and medicines to to poor people. It's it's a very depressing. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I did I did just want to add, because you mentioned the NHS, like the NHS is obviously not going well at the moment. Yeah, I was And it's say. kind of it's the example no. <laughs> that people know for a different yes. way of providing yes. primary care or general practice. But there's heaps of other examples. So Denmark does this really well, mm. various provinces of Canada do this really well. So I think it's important to remember kind of the breadth of international examples that we have. Um and it's like the, the options are not just binary, the NHS versus what we have right now, because there's some things that are great about the NHS. There's obviously some things that are really terrible about the NHS and we don't want to copy either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm keen to get into yeah, the history of, of Medicare and, and of general practice and what different models could look like. But first, just wanted to look at the actual problem, the state of healthcare right now. There there have been a bunch of you know reports into this recently, a Productivity Commission report released earlier this year in particular, showed just how many people are like skipping or delaying uh, primary care visits, and and that would include, as well as as seeing a GP, it's like psychology or or seeing a dentist. Um, doing that because of the cost, and we know that that then has these really significant flow-ons onto state funded hospital systems, well also funded by by the feds, but um, we're seeing you know more. Ambulance ramping and we're seeing overcrowded emergency departments and and that sort of thing at the the hospital level because people just show up for something that they can't get into a doctor for or they delay care until it's so bad they need to go to the hospital. But in terms of GPS, apparently about yeah three point five percent of people had postponed or skipped GP visits in the last 12 months because of the cost, and that was up from two point four percent in the previous year. So on that, you know it's growing at, at a quite significant rate. And the estimates, I think most people's experience would be that it's harder to find a bulk billing GP than it would have been years ago and that's borne out by the statistics, you know, Medicare shows. I'm, I'm curious about this actually, Amanda, because the official Medicare figures show that like the proportion of GP attendances that are bulk billed is around 84%, which is like falling over recent years. But then other analysis from organizations like Clean Bill have it at like a third of doctors are bulk billing. Do you, do you know what the discrepancy is there?
3: Yeah, so there's some really um, dodgy manipulation of statistics that happens where they look at the proportion of Medicare items that are bulk built, and that yeah. doesn't mean visits that are bulk billed. So within a single doctor's appointment, you might have three or four different Medicare items that are relevant to that consult and they might charge you for one of them and then bulk bill the other three. Mm, okay. Um, um, there's also things like when you have a blood test and that pathology service is bulk-billed, that counts as a bulk-billed service that you um, might not even think about. So yes. you can have a really right. high proportion of total Medicare items being bulk-billed, um, but that doesn't mean that the visits themselves are bulk-billed. Um, and there's also yeah. just there's there's a variety of ways that, GP practices, which are all by necessity private businesses, um, the different ways that they're structuring their finances and how that's affecting the way statistics are reported. So, like the really critical figure to me is that proportion of people who are either putting off or not going to the GP. They Mm. are delaying medical care because of cost. That is real. Um, That's borne out in all of the conversations that I've had during the election campaign. And that's the one that we need to focus on.
0: Yeah, right. And a lot of GPs will say, right, that this isn't their fault that they're forced not to bulk bill anymore because like they can't operate on a on a bulk billing model i'm maybe you know without i don't know if there's a super simple way for folks who don't know the nuts and bolts of of how bulk billing works to explain what they're talking about when they say that and how bulk billing versus having to pay a gap fee works when you go to the gp
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the Medicare rebate for a standard GP appointment is $39.10. And when your GP bulk bills you, what that means is the medical center is accepting $39.10 as full payment for the services that they've provided you. Mm -hmm. And that has to pay for the doctor's time, the receptionist's time, the nurse's time, the rent, the utilities, the insurance, the medical equipment, um, and everything else. So like that just doesn't cover the cost of providing the service. So, Mm -hmm. um, Clinics can't afford to do that anymore. Um medical centres are being faced uh, with the with a terrible choice of closing their doors or not providing care, or charging a gap fee to patients. So charging a fee per consult that's higher than the Medicare rebate. And then you you just get your rebate back from from the government. So there's really two problems with this system. The first one is that the the dollar amount's just too low, and that was frozen by previous federal governments as a as a budget. Yeah.
1: Measure, so it hasn't kept pace with uh, sorry, the cost which, of providing
3: Which party, care. Which, yeah. party exactly? Which party? Was which party?
1: <laughs> sorry, just clarify. Yeah,
3: it was Labour. Oh, Labour's <laughs> <so> crazy. Because
1: <laughs> they're, the yeah. they're the ones that are good on health, wanna, I thought. But I okay, thought they, they, they froze me.
0: Okay, they look after
3: Medicaid. They really, save Medicaid.
1: Uh, interesting. Anyway, please carry on.
3: <laughs> yeah and look perpetuated perpetuated by the lips for for you know yeah. more than a decade so the the dollar amount itself is doesn 't cover the cost of providing medical care, but the second problem is that it 's a fee for service reimbursement model, mm-hmm. and that fundamentally disincentivizes care for vulnerable and disadvantaged groups of people. Um, mm-hmm. It means that a medical practice financially is incentivized to provide six minute appointments because mm-hmm. that 's how you get the most dollars per minute, so if you ever feel like you 've been like chuffed off. By a doctor yes. think, rushing you. Like the system is set up to make that happen. And for you know, First Nations people, people with mental illness, people with a history of trauma, sexual assault, um, trans and gender diverse people, there's there's whole groups of people that need um, good quality medical care who are the most disadvantaged by that FIFA service reimbursement model. So I'm the most excited, not just about models that like tinker around the edges and fiddle with the amount or how it's administered, but actually um, like overhaul to actually publicly provide services, particularly for those really marginalized groups of people that need healthcare the most.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, that fee-for-service model as well, like it kind of, that means that a practice theoretically has an interest in continuing to need to see you. Like it has an interest in ill health in a way. Um, and so there's also discussions about like a, a value-based or a, yeah, yeah, a value-based model um, where you can somehow have GPs, Compensated for better outcomes for for patients, um, which I, I'm curious about. But in particular, the the, the healthphone service.
1: Uh, well, your like, patient, your patient. I don't quite. Yeah, it's
0: something about like <laughs> that. It would continue across the a longer period, so it's not just for that appointment. It's like you would have like a multidisciplinary team working with a patient and then the GP gets kind of uh, a rebate for that initial service, but also an additional payment at the end of a certain period based on patient outcomes. Do you this was a recommendation, I think of the the task force that the federal government set up. they have this this 750 million dollar reform medic, Medicare task force and that's one of the recommendations potentially.
3: Yeah, that one is also um, slightly problematic in the sense that the people that are most likely to stay well and out of hospital are like quite advantaged groups Mm, of people. Again, people with good health literacy, you're going to end up in dramatically different um, funding models for um, like high and low socioeconomic areas of the same city. It's very messy. Um, but the thing that fascinates me is this the whole idea of this like payment per patient, payment per appointment. Like we don't do that for the provision of any other essential services. We don't pay mm. the bus driver for like how many stops they can hit during yeah. their shift. Um, I don't know why we don't just pay doctors a salary and then evaluate health services based on mm. the way that they improve True. health outcomes for a whole community. Um, and this, yeah. this isn't as radical as it sounds, um, because it's the way that we fund Aboriginal community controlled health organisations. Hmm. Um, so these are multidisciplinary health services that get a block of funding over a period of time, say 10 years. Like staff of are just services, paid salaries. yeah, yes. um, and then you know that higher level is evaluation is done over that period of time. And and the KPI mm-hmm. is about improving health outcomes on a community level. So you can really target that funding to kind of long-term health outcome improvement rather than like the kind of perverse KPIs that all of these various fee-for-service models create where you're trying to hit. Targets whether it's patients per day or seeing a certain type of patient, it's all really perverse.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, or a public education system, right? We don't pay teachers by lessons or classes or you know per student or whatever. We we put them on a salary. Say your job is to educate people. Have at it. Yeah, provide this important service to people. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, maybe we get into because I hadn't come across that like the constitutional objection to to the state directly or like to the feds directly employing GPs. But I I had learned only recently that that was initially the way that it was kind of proposed for this to be set up. Like that there's this article in Jacobin, which we can link to by Anthony O'Donnell, um, that talks about when the Curtin government was developing, you know, our welfare state post-World War II and the National Health and Medical Research Council, which was the government's main health advisory body proposed replacing private practices with a coordinated system of hospitals and group practice clinics. Um, And there was like a parliamentary committee adopted that report. They were like, great, but then the Labor government at the time decided to go for instead subsidising hospital treatment and the cost of medicines. And, of course, later that was then, you know, I would say still improved but not radically reformed by Whitlam when he introduced Medibank because it still retained that that fee-for-service model um, just with a, a public insurer to kind of fill that gap for people who didn't have private insurance. But I, I'm interested in the, yeah, the idea of like, what if the state did directly employ GPs? And and I know in Queensland, I'm not sure if any other states, if Greens in any other states have um, talked about this as well. I think maybe New South Wales had a proposal around this in in the election in like, we've talked about GP clinics in in each community or in each LGA, for example. Where GPS are employed directly by the state government on similar pain conditions to their you know counterparts in in hospitals, um, and I think Tasmania, the Liberal government in Tasmania, is trialling something like this right now, like a four year contract for for GPS to be employed directly by the state government. Do you reckon that that is that a better solution than this kind of privatised GP practice model?
3: Yeah, 100%. And, and this yeah. is the policy that we took to the election we just had in New South Wales. Yeah. Um, it was actually a recommendation of the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry into Rural Health that just oh, happened okay. in the past couple of right. years um, <laughs> for regional areas. Um, but from my point of view, mm. there's no reason this wouldn't work for everyone, I think. Yeah is huge cost savings for the state government in doing this because it's the state government that pays for hospitals and emergency departments. So if you can actually invest in keeping people well and out of hospital, it's going to reduce the amount of spending on hospitals and emergency departments longer term, but you're not going to get that in the first year. And of course, like we're probably all rightly cynical about governments wanting kind of short term. Outcomes rather than long yeah, term yeah. outcomes. Um, yeah. But what we were proposing is that local health districts each run a public primary care service where GPs are paid a salary, where there can be local decision making around who else would make up that multidisciplinary team and what gaps there are in the private sector within each local health district. And I think doing that um, at the same time as the federal government looks at, it, medic- at its Medicare reforms mm-hmm. is actually a really elegant way of doing it because there's a genuine mistrust of this kind of system from healthcare workers, from doctors. And that's because public services have been either mismanaged or underfunded so many times in recent memory. So I think if the state government leads the way and does a number of these services without replacing all of the GP clinics with this kind of model, it's actually an opportunity to demonstrate that not only does it work and improve health outcomes for the community, not only do patients like using this kind of service, but if we actually look after the staff and make it – you know, a safe, respectable place to work for healthcare workers. I think that will make the conversation easier down the track of you know what what it's like working in this kind of model. Mm-hmm. Because at the moment, you you would have total uproar from <laughs> doctors and healthcare workers if you if you replaced all GP clinics with yeah. this kind of model in the short term. And I, and I don't think that's feasible.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting like we come up against this every time that we try to talk about like proper. Uh, fully publicly provided services or like national nationalizing services or re-nationalizing services because people don't, um, their, their experience with government provided services is generally quite bad. And we have like a two-tier system in so many of these areas. Like when we talked in Queensland about nationalizing private hospitals, people are like, oh, well, every public hospital that I've, uh, you know, worked at or um, been treated at, has been shittier than, than private, like than the private experience. And it's like, well, that that's because of a, a, you know, drastic underfunding of the public system. Um, but it's true that I think, yeah, we might kind of come up against that resistance initially and we need to show that it can be done well and and should be done well. Uh. And I, I mean, I'm also interested, I guess the objection as well or one of the reasons that people say we have this crisis of access to GPs is because there is a shortage of doctors generally. And um, I think in Queensland, when we talked about uh, opening GP clinics, we also talked about the fact that yet yeah, they would need to be paid commensurate with their um, counterparts in in hospitals because that's maybe one of the reason that people don't go into general practice is because other specialist areas pay better. And there's also uh, there's like, there's less training apparently there, you know, as well as the limited rebates and, and the lower pay. Are those the kind of things that you guys were talking about as well in the New South Wales platform when you talked about removing barriers for junior doctors to go into general practice? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we need yeah.
3: about 40% of medical graduates to become GPs for the health system to function. And at the moment, only about 10% of junior doctors actually want to be yeah. GPs. So part of this is that um, pay disparity that kind of respect disparity within the mm. health sector, GPs kind of get trodden on by the by other medical professions. Um, but it's also this problem where, so junior doctors, when you graduate from medical school, you have to do a certain number of years working in the public hospital system as an intern, as a resident, and then you pick your specialty. And at that moment, currently, if a junior doctor decides to be a GP, they take a pay cut all the way back to a first-year graduate salary. They lose mm. all of their access to study leave and parental leave. And we're going, why does no one want to be a GP? Yeah, okay. Uh, so so some of these things are really, really fixable in the short term and you already mentioned the Tasmanian example. So this is where Tasmania is mm. intervening and just directly employing those junior doctors who are making the choice to become specialist GPs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Victoria is looking at doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, like, okay. that's, that's something that the states could do in the short term to try and plug that gap. But then yeah, yeah that, that bigger picture of like local health districts actually employing GPs as staff specialists and, yeah. and respecting their expertise, I think is really important to get junior doctors to want to be GPs.
0: Yeah, it's funny because like, I think when I initially, you know, became aware of, you know, this idea that there's a massive shortage of GPs, the AMA has warned that. By 2031, we'll have a national shortfall of over 10,000 GPs and it's like, oh, not not enough people are studying medicine, but it's actually not that. It's that we've got lots of doctors that are graduating, but it's what specialty they choose to go into.
3: Yeah. And I think most of the general public just have no idea that general practice is a specialty. Like it's not that mm. we chose not to do a specialty. It's a, it's a minimum of a, of another four years postgraduate specialist training with tens of thousand dollars of, of really difficult exam fees. Um, and you know, we're recognized by APRA as specialist doctors. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: I love this idea of a hierarchy within the doctors. Like a tweet doctor is just an <laughs> know, amazing person. He's like, like so least. smart and does all these. Things. The idea <laughs> thing you go to it, you you fucking GP. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> I, it is like, and I'm kind of hesitant to say this because you're a former GP, but I also think I get torn between being like. I, I agree. It sounds like GPs have a, a much rawer deal than other specialists. And obviously the rebate that's provided by Medicare for services has just, you know, completely failed to keep pace with inflation. And I, you know, rent and power prices and equipment and everything else is is getting more expensive. So certainly it would be less and less viable to run a practice. But at the same time, it's like, well, the way that our system has been set up is for these these practices to be run as private businesses that are meant to turn a profit. And like yeah. fundamentally, I don't think they should be able to turn a profit. And so I think that's the other thing as well that I'm cautious of when, you know, we see a lot of the the medical um, profession lobbying, particularly from GPs is kind of like, well, we can't possibly, like, you know, you can't make us pay payroll tax and, and you know, you just need need to pay us more for services. There is a lot of the time less of that lobbying for like a radical reform from some GPs who might want to just continue to run their practice as a business. And I think we need to, like, separate that out from the calls, you know, socialist demands for, like, a a properly publicly funded um, healthcare service, including GPs.
3: Yeah, totally. And, you know, this system has set general practices up. To fail the way it's set up yeah. at the moment. Like it's not a good way of, of providing a, what is an essential public service. So yeah. definitely sticking with these kind of higher level system discussions is really important. But then I think when we talk about individual health workers, um, you know, safe working conditions is something that we would all agree is important, um, yes. and especially <laughs> in the public sector. Um, and when you've got, you know, really high rates of, for example, suicide among doctors, mm-hmm. um, when you see what happened to health workers through the pandemic pandemic like actually people feeling safe and respected and doing a reasonable amount of work in their jobs is super super important and that's not happening at the moment particularly for gps
0: yeah yeah and and obviously improving that is very likely to mean better patient outcomes um mm-hmm.
1: God, yeah, those stories you hear of people going in for surgery and they talk to their surgeon and the surgeon is like i haven't slept for three days anyway let's open you up and let's see how this goes like some pretty fucked up stories in that respect yeah
0: yeah I mean, I'm I'm curious as well. In particular, so you said that that uh, GP clinics idea was one of the recommendations of an an inquiry or a task force that was looking at regional healthcare, and I think that's something you focused on a fair bit during the election campaign. Um, I'm keen to hear what you think. Like, ha- what are the problems there with the disparity in? Access to quality healthcare in urban centres versus the regions? And what should we be doing about it?
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, the reason the um, public primary care clinics came up as a recommendation of this, like otherwise relatively conservative inquiry, is because Mm -hmm. lo and behold, a partial rebate for private services doesn't work as a model where you haven't got economies of scale for anyone to set up a business. So mm-hmm. like under that status quo model, you haven't got people opening up GP clinics yeah. or pathology services or physiotherapy clinics or any other kind of health service in really tiny towns, because you need yeah. a certain throughput of patients to actually run a business. So yeah. the, the inquiry recognized that and said in those really tiny communities, we need to roll out public service provision. <laughs> and yeah. that, you know they didn't make the link that that's obviously so true in kind of every disadvantaged community that needs better access to healthcare um, and not, not just small communities. So, so that's a huge problem in the country. Um, We obviously have insane problems with workforce maldistribution. Mm. And part of that's to do with those conditions that you've got this really dangerous cycle happening where rural health workers are dangerously overworked and underappreciated so they're walking off the job, they're either leaving the profession, moving to the cities or moving into state. And then the people who are left are even more overworked. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the people that are left, you know, when I was particularly talking to nurses, midwives, paramedics during the election campaign, like they are absolutely at the end of their tether with their with their jobs. Mm, and these yes. are people who like, are passionate about Providing healthcare for people, a lot of them are either from the country or have moved to the country because they're passionate about serving their communities. Um, But they've been so thrown under the bus, particularly by like the New South Wales Liberal National government that we've had for the last twelve years, um, not implementing things like um, safe nurse to patient staffing ratios that we have in other states. Yeah. Um, So like the conditions are really dire for staff. So we've got a real workforce problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I certainly like living in a city. I don't find it that hard, to be honest, to to find a, a bulk billing GP or to get an appointment if I need one. But I know that's completely different. That's absolutely not the case. And particularly, you know, for areas I, I think you've talked a lot about, particularly for reproductive healthcare and and things like that. It can be so difficult for people in regional areas. We've talked about this on the show as well before, um, to access abortion services and and things like that to people are even traveling interstate. And so there's obviously a whole a uh, lot that needs to be done to to close that gap between yeah regional healthcare services, the whole spectrum, and, and what's available to people who live in the cities.
1: Any good news coming down the pipeline with this New South Wales Labor government? Mm-hmm. Where they, they were certainly making a lot of noise about, hey, let's restore our public services and the New South Wales healthcare is in crisis. What is the Men's Labor government going to be doing for New South Wales when it comes to this kind of stuff?
3: Yeah, so the MINS Labour government um has promised to remove the public sector wage cap. So that'll allow uh, Nurses and Midwives Association, mm-hmm. and paramedics union to start pay negotiations that are that are reasonable. Yeah. Because um, under the previous government, they had pay cuts in real terms because of inflation. Great. Um, the didn't can, Labor didn't government... commit to paying
1: them more, I will note. Didn't no, necessarily no, say just we're definitely going to give them a pay. The yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening what they are going to do first, and then I was going to talk about why the Greens would be better. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're, they're talking about doing um, the safe staffing ratios for nurses in some areas of the health system not all. So particularly starting with EDs um, and general medical and surgical wards in public hospitals. So that's way better than the status quo, but um, doesn't go nearly as far as what the Nurses and Midwives Association is actually asking for. And Mm -hmm. they also said that they would implement the recommendations of that um, parliamentary inquiry into rural health which is a good thing. Like it's a low bar. Um, yeah. It's not It's not very radical stuff, but yeah, there were recommendations of that inquiry that haven't even been implemented yet. So, they, you know, there's some low-hanging fruit there for the new government.
0: Okay. And so then, yeah, what's the other stuff though that we or you are going to be in parliament pushing them to do on health? Beyond that. So, I mean, we've already talked about
3: public primary care services and how yeah. awesome those would be, so I've got yeah. I've got a big V in my bonnet about that. We're going to push for safe nurse-to-patient staffing ratios across the whole health system and not just those handful of wards. I'm particularly interested in um, reproductive health. You kind of mentioned in passing mm. um, the access issues. So, in New South Wales, abortion was still in the Crimes Act until 2019. Good. So, it was decriminalised in 2019 and then not much happened in terms of actually
0: yeah. improving service Access. Queensland to Yeah. Like yeah. A similar story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, they're just not criminals. That's good. Ladies, you know, yeah. people with yeah, not yeah. criminals anymore. If you could get one, it good.
0: wouldn't be illegal. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah.
3: So people are either traveling a long way or having to pay a lot of money to access the private system for reproductive health. Um, so there's tons of mm-hmm. work to do there. And then um also looking at mental health and new south wales spends the least per capita of any state on community mental health services. Mm -hmm. We could probably do a whole separate episode about this, but so many of the same problems as general practice. So we've got this system of partial rebates in a privatized system where people have to go and find private psychologists, et cetera. Um, We need to look at bolstering the community mental health sector so people can actually go and see like a, a local public salaried service to access those services in New South Wales is the worst state of all of doing that.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. And I mean obviously as well we all know at, at the federal level like our Greens MPs there are pushing on bringing dental and mental into Medicare. And I think the biggest one that like I I didn't really see the Greens talk about it that much during the federal election but ditching that private health insurance rebate so that you could redirect that, you know, $7 billion annually into the public system that would actually allow us to do this stuff, to to properly fund a universal public health care system. And I think they'd also talked about that that kind of more, those reforms around team-based health care that address some of the the other issues. You know, one of the other reasons that people say the the GP access crisis is, is worsening is because we have more people who are going to the the GP to manage these on like long term chronic health conditions rather than just kind of acute issues that are like one and done, um, and so yeah, addressing that with with better um, team based healthcare to to manage manage that is something that the federal crew would be working on.
1: Can I just one last question? And apologies if we can't touch it, but. Uh, what happened with those super clinics thing? Wasn't that a big labor policy at the federal election last year? The Medicare super clinics—what are they? Are they a thing? What's going on there?
3: Yeah, so there have been various kind of attempts at improving access to GPs, and there are models like the super clinics where some of those overheads are covered through government funding to help make clinics viable by bulk billing people but they are still right. funded on that fee-for-service basis, that per-appointment basis, yeah. and that that is fundamentally broken.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we should get rid of that and do the good... <laughs> the good way instead that's my my view yeah uh, and um, and on
3: I'm that. <laughs> glad that you mentioned the private health insurance rebates um because you know whenever I talk about this stuff publicly people are like oh how are you gonna pay for it and yeah you know without taking into account obvious stuff like the stage three tax cuts and submarines at a federal level like even within the health system we are funding stuff that is not helping people improve their health outcomes yeah. so the private health insurance rebates the obvious one at a federal level here in New South Wales we're spending more than 200 million dollars a year on on private recruitment agencies to fill staffing shortages like in wow. rural areas. So not even talking about the salaries yeah. for the healthcare workers themselves. Um, if we just centralise that process and stop using private commission-based recruitment agencies, there's a huge amount of money that that can be redirected into quality public services.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yes, as always, the argument that there's no money to pay for it is bullshit. <laughs> um, but it's a matter of, you know, cutting down maybe some private profits here and there uh, and redirect them into And it's a
1: political a win. System. Everyone loves fucking nurses. Yeah. I mean, you know, doctors may be a little bit <laughs> well, more complicated. Maybe there's some Tory yeah, doctors yeah, that we don't complicated like. Nurses,
3: about doctors, I feel. Loves-
1: yeah. yeah, it's
3: a bit Everyone too literal for nurse. me, tell my partner's a nurse. <laughs> well, okay.
0: I was saying someone said the other day, God, I can't remember who this was, but there was like, you know how people say, how do you know someone's a vegan, they'll tell you they're a vegan or whatever. It's like if someone I don't know if your parents are like this, Amanda, uh, but how do you know if someone's Uh, children are a doctor, like they will tell you within the first five minutes. So at least, yeah, parents are always proud uh, to have kids who who are
1: doctors. doctors, But the love and the recognition and, of course, you know, we're all clapping for healthcare workers, you know, and it is remarkable how during the pandemic the celebration of this recognition of the crucial part that a functioning healthcare system plays in a society and just keeping away the chaos and helping people and all that love and uh, support and that recognition Seems sort of dissipated pretty quickly when we step back to normal and neoliberal governments continue doing their thing of underpaying these people who do valuable work and keep perpetuating a system that doesn't actually provide universal healthcare, for God's sakes.
3: Yeah, totally. Yeah. We need to keep looking after healthcare workers. And now I have the dubious honour of having gone from one of the most trusted professions in the community, oh <laughs> my God. Yeah, it's to, true. Uh, to not just a state politician but a green state uh, politician. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very sorry about that.
1: The worst of the worst.
0: But good for us. <laughs> so, yes, what's the best correct. way to like keep up with what you're working on? What kind of social media do you use the most, where people can go and follow your work?
3: Um, so I'm on Facebook. So just put in um, Amanda Cohn into Facebook. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not as good at Twitter. Um, and hopefully I'll have a website up very soon, as soon as my office is up and running properly.
0: Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on again. Congratulations on being an MP. Bloody good luck in there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
3: And thanks so much for having me and for, and for talking about this issue. It's obviously um, super important. I'm glad it's getting
0: some airtime. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got to do it.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Cheers.
0: What should people do this week, Tom, if they would like the rate to be raised? Since, as we discussed, people need money. Well,
1: they should invest their hopes and dreams in the Labor Party and uh, trust that join the and Labor they, Party. They're going to watch this space. That's the call to action this week. Watch this watch space. Watch this space. Yeah, yeah. Sit tight. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> No, you can do things. If you're in Sydney, you can join the Raise the Rate Rally at Anthony Albanese's office in Marrickville on Friday, April the 28th. It's being coordinated by the good people at the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Go to his goddamn office, get Billy Bragg down there, Uh, talk about the fact that uh, keeping people in poverty is not what a Labor government should be doing. We'll put a link in the show notes for that action. That's if you're in Sydney. Elsewhere in the country, you can always go to raisetherate.org.au. You can join the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union as a solidarity member or if you're unemployed yourself, you can get involved with them. We love them. They do great Mm -hmm. work. I mean, yeah, Jesus, if the the anti-poverty social services movement um, can't push things here, then, uh, well, uh, if the Labor government is going to do this, then it's it's up to the rest of us to try and push them as much as possible. So, um, au is the Unemployed Workers Union website.
0: Speaking of Jesus, which you said maybe a minute ago, mm. um, if folks want a little bit of a throwback following Father Bob's death this week, uh, I don't know if, if you haven't listened to episode 11, we interviewed him way back then I will be honest, it was a pretty chaotic interview. I remember at the time <laughs> we were like, well, that was interesting. Yes. But it's quite sweet. There's some good shit in there. Episode 11. Uh, we'll put a little clip in there now from one of Father Bob's best moments. Vale, will Bar- Father Bob. Father fob.
3: I'm doing a bit of propagandising by going and saying, I want a second uh, passenger bus. We already have one and it's being uh, used to... Uh, take people, uh, uh, encourage people to be, what's the word? Not exterminated. Vaccinated? <laughs> <laughs> Is it vaccinated? Well, it's vaccinated.
1: vaccinated. You're a vaccinate. You can't <laughs> confuse those two.
3: I've got that little thing on me. have those little things that were in Doctor Who. Exterminate.
0: Exterminate the Daleks. Exterminate. <laughs>
3: no, 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 no. Forget exterminate. No, vaccinate. Exterminate. Good. Vaccinate good. good. And, and you need to laugh our way through it. Yes, <laughs> you, see, you see cry and you cry alone. Laugh and the laugh and world laughs
1: with you. I agree. I just think people should know that the Father Bob Maguire Foundation is not putting people onto buses like and bus. taking them for extermination. I just want to make that really clear to all the viewers and listeners no. that's not the situation. <laughs> vale, Father Bob, uh, rested power, as it were. I, I got to work with him a little bit through Triple J stuff as well. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to say what... Has it already been said by people who knew him much better than us, but so funny, so giving and generous and a living example of <laughs> the best parts of the of the Christian faith?
0: Not a living example, Tom, but
1: Well, when he was alive, a living example of Extraordinary power of community and faith, and even I, I always felt like even as an atheist, not a uh, God bother in anyway. Yeah, way, you're a,
0: like ferocious atheist.
1: Yes, very annoying, Thanks. uh obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I felt like even Father Bob, Father Bob it made room even for me, and there was so much that we could clearly agree on about helping people and stuff. So it's um it's sad that he's left us, but it was pretty awesome that he was here in the first place, and. Yeah, take a listen back to that insane interview and remember, I'd thank Father Bob for everything that he did.
0: And remember also to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening now, if you haven't before, leave us a five-star review and a little, you know, some kind words. It doesn't help. Um, people have been being mean to me on Twitter this week and making me sad, so if you leave yeah, us a review well, saying something that's nice about me specifically, that will really cheer me up. And um, they know
1: you're the funny one?
0: Yeah, just just say I'm funny. Um, anything nice, really, would be really great and appreciated. Uh, you can support the show on Patreon. That would also bring a smile to our little faces. Or follow us on at Serious Danger AU on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. You can find all the links and stuff at SeriousDangerPod.com. Um, or send us an email, hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. And just before we go, don't forget to buy live show tickets. If you're going to be in Mianjin, Brisbane on the 21st of May, Good Chat Comedy Club. Live show with Max Chandler-Mather and Geraldine Hickey. It's going to be so good. Buy tickets. Links in the show notes.
1: Thanks, team. Bye.
3: Bye. This is a, this is a <laughs>